Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Tax planning forms a fundamental part of the financial advice process, from tax efficient investing to gifting and inheritance tax arrangements. And with Chancellor Rishi Sunak facing a £200 billion shortfall due to the coronavirus crisis, many are expecting tax hikes as early as next year with the capital gain structure already in the crosshairs. So what effect has the pandemic had on tax planning and what does the future look like for advisors going forward? I'm Imogen Chu, reporter at FD Advisor, and joining me today to discuss the possibilities is Georgina Partridge, advisor at Peters Wealth Management, Steve Carlson, director at Carlson Wealth Management, and Nick Bird, senior business development manager at Octopus Investments. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us. Hello. Hi. Hello. Lovely. So Steve, let's start with you. Um, what impact, if any, has the pandemic had on tax planning? I think I stressed the importance of good tax planning on an ongoing basis and trying to do everything that you can in a timely manner. Um, because I think the pandemic has seen, for some of, our, some of my clients anyway, a change in circumstances which they might not have foreseen, whether that's a drop in income or drop in business profits. And I think at times like this, it's good to make sure that you're prepared for that. So there's certain things with clients running up to the up to the pandemic, we make sure that they're on top of, you know, things like structuring their income in the most tax efficient manner, making sure allowances are used um, in terms of pension contributions to make sure that they are up to date with those as much as possible. And they've used things like the annual allowance and so on. Because I think when we're coming into a stage now where profitability might have dropped and income might have dropped, they're there are circumstances where people can catch a cold. So for instance, if we're looking at things like pension contributions early on this year, I've had to reassess it with all of my clients. Certain factors, for instance, like a company making company pension contributions, the advantage for the company is that it gets corporation tax relief. So I'm always encouraging clients when there is profitability in the company to make those pension contributions to get that tax relief. Because the worst situation business owners can be in now is where they've got large retained earnings uh, in the bank account. They've got the cash to make the pension contributions. But if profitability has dropped or they're making a loss to make those contributions now, they might not get the capital. uh, They might not get the corporation tax relief. Similarly, what we've had to reassess with all individuals is the timing of certain of these contributions as well. I mean, one thing I always say to all my clients, a simple one for anybody with children is to always make sure that you claim child benefit now i say this to clients even if they're earning way above the sixty thousand, at eighty thousand, or a hundred thousand a year or more because we're seeing this now where there's been a change in circumstance change in employment and drop in earnings they might actually fall below that threshold of fifty thousand, where they can keep the child benefit but if that that happens halfway through the year you can't backdate to claim the child benefit. So I'm starting to see one or two of these things now where the advance planning for where things can change dramatically is starting to come to the forefront now because it gives more opportunities for that. So it's just kind of prepping to make sure your clients are kind of set up for multiple possibilities and stuff that they might not have foreseen originally. Anyway, Georgina, is that kind of the similar take that you'd have? Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with Steve and the fact that tax planning is always part of the financial planning process. Um, Obviously, in terms of impact of the pandemic at the end of March, April, there was a period of time where 
people froze and weren't making any decisions on their financial planning and in particular tax planning. Um, I would say since then that it is business as usual and people have started thinking again about what they need to do. And I think people spending a bit more time at home, a bit more time with their families, have actually had more conversations about things like estate planning and inherited planning for inheritance tax and just really thinking a little bit more about the impact on their family and in particular if anything goes wrong. So I've certainly seen a lot more engagement on that side and a bit more willingness to discuss that sort of thing. Um, it's often an area that gets left till last and people don't like to plan too far in advance and they do put it on a back burner, but I've certainly seen more of a willingness to discuss that and the planning strategies around it. Nick, what about you? What, what are you hearing from your kind of advisor context? Yeah, I, I think I'd very much echo the last bit that Georgina was saying there. I mean, I think that the thing about what's changed in the, in the, in the pandemic with tax planning, I think planning, ta taxes is one uh, element of all planning, clearly for, from a financial advisor, but, but planning. And I think the family element is the one bit that I've really seen echoed across so, so many, uh, across the last number of months, and probably because of the technology. Technology has suddenly opened up a much wider opportunity for families to talk to each other. I talk to my mum and dad way more now than I think I ever used to. And they're all video calls. It seems silly to almost to pick up the phone. And I've definitely been with advisors that in the past, seeing a wider family unit has been more difficult just logistically. Suddenly, actually, whilst they've lost one of their great senses of the face-to-face -face meetings, suddenly another opportunity has opened up with much more um, computer-based sort of uh, uh, meetings. So I think the technology has made a big, big difference. The other bit there, I think often people think tax planning has a deadline to it. And that's where things, a tax year end planning always comes in mind. Steve was mentioning about pension contributions, making the most of your allowances and so on. I think that perhaps the point that Georgina was making around um, estate planning you know, that only comes with one deadline. It's not one that we ever want to, to, to reach. Um, but there's one way or another, there's been a greater deal of vulnerability in, in the older population. I felt very differently in this pandemic than my parents have felt. Um, and I think that it's something that perhaps people do want to get their house in order. And I think discussions, were, and I think planners are, are so valuable in, in those discussions because they perhaps are the nice conduit between what is quite an emotional discussion, but out about what are very logical outcomes around how you want your, your estate to be dealt with when you're no longer around. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. Um, what about kind of looking forward? I mean, we see kind of a different headline every Sunday about the taxes that Rishi is gonna target next uh, in order to kind of balance the books after this. Um, Georgina, have your clients come to you at all kind of with fears over, um, what the tax changes might be are they kind of generally quite fearful about that i don't think they are actually that no one's been fearful i think there's more just an expectation um so people are expecting something to happen something to change um i don't think it will be a real shock for them and i think that we'll just have to plan accordingly um there are changes every year really and us as financial planners are always having to adapt to changes in legislation whether it be pension allowances whether it be capital gains tax or the suggestion recently but um we, we you know we're not there really to provide opinion or comment on that we just adapt to those rules and we, we, we're in a positive relationship with our clients and we just have to help them through these changes Sure. Um, what about you, Steve? Are your clients kind of in a similar position? Are they raising up the possibility of 
higher taxes? Generally not, no, I'll be honest. There's a few that have mentioned it and it comes up in conversation, but I think to be perfectly honest, like with a lot of the clients I deal with, the tax situation gets so complicated anyway that they can find it difficult to keep track of. You know, I think when you start becoming a higher earner, it's very difficult to track exactly what taxes you are paying and what affects you and what doesn't. So yeah, I think there's a general sense that we are going to have to pay for this somehow. But, you know, in terms of what that what's going to change and how it's going to affect them, they don't know. I mean, I think as a financial planner working with my clients, I'm probably more concerned than they are. Hmm. You know, and I think it's <laughs> driving them to make decisions you know, you get clients where everything makes sense now holistically in terms of their long-term financial plan, their personal situation and the tax planning. But sometimes there's reticence to go through with it because of just because of personal feelings, like things like taking a large amount of money out of the company, you know, where there's that threshold to cross. But it makes sense now when I get in this with some of my clients to say, well, look, we know that taxes are coming in some way, shape or form. We don't know what they're going to be. We don't know how they're going to hit you. The only thing we can predict with some certainty is it's going to be worse. You know, so if things make sense now from a holistic and a tax planning perspective, I think don't put it off anymore. Let's do the things now to, you know, to, to, to make this tax planning and financial planning decisions. So I think that's the message I'm, I'm getting across to quite a few of my clients at the moment. Imogen, I think what I might add to that, though, is quite, it's quite interesting, I think, that we all think about the taxation system as something as a sort of punitive um, system, but it's also one to encourage growth as well. So I think that there's one thing that, how, how do you fill this hole, I think, is almost at the beginning of it, and that's where you see all, all the headlines. And I guess that you could just tax people more heavily, and that's always an option every Chancellor has. But I think what, what's been shown through through many governments and many different economic cycles that the best, often the best route is often through growth. You want to encourage growth. You want to encourage lack of unemployment and all those bit, bits around that. So I think that's where I think advisors have um, very much embraced the various allowances up there that are to encourage positive behaviours for, for, for UK PLC. I mean, at Octopus, we see that an awful lot in the, in the VCT space. You know, that is supporting growth through smaller UK companies. And that's, that's good. It's progressive taxation. And I think we need to remember both sides of, of, of tax not just the punitive side. So there's a carrot and a stick. Sure. Um, Steve, do you use VCTs or kind of the tax-efficient investments stuff with your clients? With my clients, I think the, the EISs and VCTs are something which I do go through the process with some of my clients. I think they can give good advantages, but they're not without the disadvantages. You know, so in deciding when they're right for a client, it can be quite a complex process going through with it, to be honest, um, because there's a lot that we need to think of. Um, you know, if you're looking at things like VCTs, for instance, and EISs, they are high risk investments. You know, they're sure. high risk investments. They're not as liquid. And going through that process of when the client needs the money and access access the capital and the investment risk needs to be taken into account as well as the tax situation. Um, because I think the position I like to get my clients in first and foremost is that position where they know they're financially secure for the rest of their lives without taking too much risk. So I think getting to that position in the first instance, I think it's then when we start looking at excess capital over and above that, that maybe they can afford to take a bit more risk. Um, so I don't, the headlines sound great, but sometimes digging deeper underneath it, it's not quite as good 
is just is, there's more to think of rather than the tax advantages yeah. you know and as i'll always say you know you can't let the tax tail wag wag the dog really to be honest so it's, um, yeah, it's so. got <laughs> to be the right overall result really so yeah i imagine uh, it, it's a, a fairly niche or specific kind of parameters that would push a client towards a vct or an eis is is that your experience georgina yeah, definitely. There's there's suitable for a certain area of client who who's got that appetite. Essentially, obviously, we would have utilised all other areas of, of tax efficiency and planning and ticked those boxes, as it were. Um, and some people really do like them and enjoy the fact that they're contributing to enterprise and um, as, as Nick said before that, that sort of investing in new businesses new companies and that growth side so certainly some clients have that appetite and will approach us about it um, but clearly it is something where their attitude to risk has to be suited to that. I think what I'd, I'd add there um, Imogen is what I've seen that because I've been around for that much longer now so the VCTs began in 1995. So I think they've sort of grown in size and um, and track record and, and all the things that an advisor would look like look at uh, for any in investment. And I think where, I, where I've seen it more frequently now is it's a portfolio investment. Don't see it on its own. So I think mm -hmm. and that's why sort of Steve was making that point. Yeah, this is about different risk and so on. Well, every portfolio embraces different risks, and it's sensible to see that as proportions of of that. So I think that's that's where uh, advisors, I think, are particularly important in this process to to not just be sort of wowed by, by the headlines, but to not not lower their bar in terms of what makes a relevant investment. And I think that all advisors want to make good investments in collective investments run by specialist fund managers, utilising allowances. You know, why, why wouldn't you make a tax efficient investment? Um, but I think I've seen perhaps with the probably with the pension changes of the last few years, that's probably been the biggest driver of numbers of people. That are still allocating towards their their retirement planning, but 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 have been hamstrung by pension provision in one way or another. But they built their house, you know, they, they've they've got their pensions nice and have done for years and years and years. So perhaps adding a small amount to, to a VC holding doesn't unbalance the overall portfolio, and that's that's what I've seen the most common um, addition to to, uh, to planning for advisors. Sure, and uh, do you think if we did see? Um taxes rise whether that be income tax or a capital gains kind of revamp or wherever we see it hit do you think that we might see kind of another kind of impetus another rise again on the use of vcts and eis if as the same way we did with the pensions uh, but I mean, possibly i mean i think that it all comes back to that has to be a sensible investment decision alongside uh, clients wider goals I guess if it brings in more clients that are impacted by the amount of tax that, that, that they're paying, there might be more to offset. It's quite rare that we see um, clients put in, in a significant amount into a VCT that means they pay no tax. So I think it's always been just a, a tax reducer rather than anything else. Um, so yeah, look, I think that what will it bring? I think it will drive clients again to advisors that can advise them. And that's really, I think, any, tax, any change across all these budgets has always shown the value of good advice. You need someone to help navigate this through. We could be a beneficiary of some of that as that wider advice comes through. Sure, and uh, kind of, as we kind of mentioned it uh, briefly already, that it seems at the moment that the capital gains tax structure is potentially the one in the crosshairs. Um, what would the impact on financial advice be if 
for example, the capital gains and the income tax rates were cl more closely aligned or the allowance in capital gains tax went down. Steve, how would that kind of affect your financial planning process? I think it's uh, essentially you need to go through the whole process again with some people um, to look at where their money is invested, to see what the returns are, to see what the taxation and what the risk is. And I think with some of it, we might have to evaluate where that money is going. So, for instance, at the moment, you've got a higher rate taxpayer. You've used up the pension allowance. You've used up the ISA allowance. They've got unwrapped investments. They're paying capital gains tax of 20% on. That starts going to 40%, then you've got to reassess the vehicles that you're using. Uh, I mean, if that does happen, obviously we don't know the devil of the detail in it yet, but I can imagine things like investment bonds are going to become an awful lot more popular um, because that could offer to reduce the amount of tax. Um, similarly, going through the process of looking at EISs and VCTs, that will need to change and those tax benefits could become you know more valuable to them although there's certain aspects of it as well such as clients who are going into eis's i think those are the ones especially if they're using a, the, the capital gains tax deferral element of it need to think very carefully because at the moment a typical example of somebody who might be attracted to an eis is because they can defer a capital gain now at the moment if you've got a capital gain the most that you're going to pay is 28 percent tax if you defer again into an EIS, and by the time the gain comes back into play three or four years later, if you're facing a gain of 45%, potentially, it could actually act against you and it could be increasing your tax bill. So it, it, even though we don't like to try and predict future tax rates and what's going to happen, it's certainly something we carefully need to think about to, because we could end up in a, you don't want to end up in a situation of trying to defer or save tax and then end up with your clients paying more taxes as a result of it. So, sure. I agree that, um, that the process, the financial planning process won't change. It's the solution that's going to change. Um, and most of our clients, the nature of our clients will be utilizing their capital gains tax allowance each year. We, we do a lot of planning around that because they've utilized other allowances. And you know, as, as Steve said, they're in unwrapped, they're in a collective investment sort of environment where we have to be cognizant of that. Um, so it might make our job a bit more challenging. And we might need to look at other vehicles and other ways to um, be more tax efficient. So. It'll be really interesting if those changes happen. I do know that you know a couple of years ago there was a, a report done on IHT planning as well, and those changes haven't materialised, and that was done in 2019. So even if it does come out, the recommendations that CGT should change, we just don't know when that would happen and, and whether the government would adopt those. So you know, it's, it's always lots of speculation, but um, it's just carry on as usual for now and do what we can. Sure. And looking forward to the end of the tax year in 2021. Oh, I do um, look forward to that. <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> Most fun part of the year, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, how, how different do you think it will look in 2021 to how it did kind of in 2020, Nick? Probably not that different. I think that the, what we've heard from all the, the advisors today is that planning is consistent, that it's not towards the next budget or the next tax year. It's you know, many, many years ahead. I think, though, that probably what 2020 would have um, really taught clients, and then I've heard this time and time again, 
is how important their advisor was when things aren't going that well. You know, perhaps it's easy to be a good advisor when every statement you hand someone is everything's going great, it's all going up, everything's fantastic. What I heard in those early months of the pandemic was advisors constantly on the phone, emails, better communication actually. Yeah, even with um, short videos that I'm hearing people doing rather than long investment letters going out, they've sort of necessity is the mother of all invention. And I think it's definitely been shown there. So I hope that we don't lose some of the lessons that, that, that we learned from this time. To be a consistent long-term planner, definitely, and, and a patient investor. I think anyone that sold out would have been you know, kicking themselves right now. Um, and I think more, more than ever, uh, having someone to guide you through the, the bad times as well as the good. What about you, Steve? More of the same, uh, just maybe more of it. Uh, because, I mean, when the pandemic hit, there was, as I'd mentioned at the start, there were we had to reassess cash flow contributions, try and balance the tax planning, the investment planning, and the practical realities for some clients, especially business owners, to make sure that they retained enough cash, enough liquidity. Um, and obviously, because we don't know what the earnings are going to be, so there's probably going to be more of the same towards the end of this tax year that there always is. You know, how has the year looked? You know, what have you got left in terms of allowances, in terms of cash? What is it that we need to be doing before the end of the tax year? Because um, there's certain, I had to go through every client that was making contributions and say, are these still affordable? You know, do we need to have a buffer? Do we need to have a safety net? You know, and trying to balance the the investment sense of keeping paying cost averaging in terms of remaining liquid. So I think we need to reassess that again in March and to make sure that we are getting that balance right between investment planning, tax planning, and maintaining the right liquidity and emergency funds for clients. John, what, what about you, Georgina? I suspect it will remain the same. Um, <laughs> it does remain to be seen, but I suspect it won't be any different from usual. Having gone through you know, the last 18 years, I've been in the industry with various changes to, to things, you know, reduction in pension annual allowance and lifetime allowance is one example. Um, you sort of rushing towards the end of the tax year to adopt to changes due to come in. And I even think with that, there, were, there weren't many changes to, to the end of the tax years. It sort of every year it looks and feels the same. Um, and there'll be some people taking advantage and there are some people that don't. There'll be some people in this pandemic who will continue life as normal and there's some people that won't be and, you know, will have to scale back. So I, I think it does remain to be seen, but I suspect it will be fairly similar to, to last year, actually. So block out the Sunday headlines and stick to the planning process as normal. Yeah. Sounds like that, that's the advice. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Sorry, no, no, not at all. Um, Georgina, Steve and Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Joining me after the break will be senior reporters Rachel Mortimer and Amy Austin to talk about the biggest stories of the week. Welcome back to the FT Advisor podcast and welcome to Rachel and Amy. Hello. Hello. It doesn't feel like we go a week these days without mentioning either of the two F buzzwords in the advisor space, FCA and fees. And this week, the two collided. Rach, the FCA proposed a shake-up of some of its fees this week. What did that look like? Yes, it did. Uh, so they published a consultation paper with proposals uh, to 
shake up the authorization application fees currently in place. Uh, these haven't been sort of revisited since 2014. Uh, and the changes that they proposed in this instance for the more, most complex cases uh, could see fees got by about 70%, which is significant. But again, that is on the sort of more complex end of the scale. Um, should clarify that these aren't the annual fees which advisors and regulated firms pay every year. These are for sort of new entrants to the market who are, uh, um, are going for authorization with the FCA or if you were changing what your business does. So if you're an advisor and you also needed authorization to become a CMC, for example. Um, it's almost like an administration fee from the FCA's end. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, and so that's why the more complex ones that take longer to, to process will, will cost more and the more simp the, the simpler ones will, will, will cost less. But um, they've said that it hopes that this the, the change in fees for the application fees um, would redress the balance of cost recovery away from fee payers. Um, it's a bit, a bit of background. They said that last year in 2019, the total cost of authorizations was 19 million pounds um, at the City Watchdog. Uh, but application fees only covered a third of that, raising about 6.2 million. So obviously to make up that difference, they look to fee, existing fee payers and, and, and that, that does come out of the sort of regulatory bill that firms are paying every year. Um, they said that the latest proposals, if they'd been in place last year, uh, would have seen funds from application fees increase to 12.8 million in the same year, covering 67% of the cost. So obviously quite a big, big jump there. So it's difficult. Obviously, it's cost, it's charging people more to get into the industry in the first place. But I think what the FCA are angling for here is to actually save people who are already authorised and paying fees a little bit of money along the way. And they're also looking at introducing some new charges too, I believe. Yeah, so they were um, very clear in this consultation paper that uh, an increase in the application fees would still not cover the whole cost of processing these applications and all the administration that they do, as you say. Um, so to, in, to sort of balance that out, they're looking to introduce new charges, one of which is if you were to make a personnel change under the senior managers and certification regime, um, they would charge you for that, which they haven't done before. Um, and they're looking at the moment of that charge being about £250 per sort of change that you make. And the SMCR, this is what was rolled out last December, right? So it's been in the industry almost a year now before they're bringing in this charge. Yeah, exactly. So it was rolled out to the banking sector, um, basically in response to the financial crisis, the last one, <laughs> um, right. uh, quite a few years ago. But it was rolled out to the wider industry um, last year, as you say. Yeah, so that's been in place for about a year now. How's the industry kind of reacted to these uh, changes the FCA is proposing? Um, not very well. Obviously, the FCA are attempting to sell this as saving money for existing fee payers, which is obviously a tick, if true. Um, however, as you said, it's sort of hinted to at the beginning, regulatory bills and the cost of regulation has been a massive, massive issue um, for advisors this, this year and, and recent years as well. Um, so any sort of increase in the bill or the cost on fees that you're having to pay to the FCA was never going to be well received. Some people have raised points that actually the service that the FCA provides isn't good enough to justify charging more money to be sort of regulated and authorised by, by the regulator. Um, but again, I have to stress that 
this isn't an increase in the annual fees. Um, this is to get into the market in the first place or become authorised in, in a different sector. Um, some people, such as the Personal Finance Society, have raised issues of the advice gap and actually uh, charging people more to become authorised and set up a new advice firm is making it harder for people to enter the market and as a deterrent. And as we know, as an uh, ageing population of advisors leave the market, there's not going to be enough new people, new firms coming through to sort of plug that gap. Um, and finally, and this this is certainly um, true for the new charge on SMCR changes, it's putting it's increasing the financial burden on smaller firms. You know, if you're a relatively small advice firm with five or six people working for you and you make a couple of CM, SMCR changes, you know, a £500 charge is, is not to be sort of um, ignored. Sure. No, I mean, it's, it, it's a hefty amount, especially when you add on, as you say, the rising costs that smaller firms have faced over the past couple of years has been kind of the, the massive bugbear of, of the industry. So it's definitely um, something that advisors are going to are gonna be, be upset about. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously the FCA is in, it, has to, it has to sort of find funding somewhere, but it does seem, maybe it's because we cover it so much and we're so aware of, how upset advisors have been with rising regulatory bills this year, it does strike me, in my opinion, a little bit tone deaf to be consulting on increasing the, the, the amount that firms have to pay to the regulator. And I'm not surprised that it's not been that it's not been well received. But it's a difficult balancing act because the FCA has also has to fund its work as well. So yeah, it's tricky. Um, and while we're on the topic of buzzwords, uh, DB transfers have been in the spotlight once again recently, this time because of a FOS decision. What happened, Ames? Uh, yeah, so the FOS put out its uh, recent decision on the British Steel Pension Scheme transfers. Um, so an advice firm which was involved in this whole transfer debacle uh, was told by the FOS to pay out um, after it found that the benefits of the scheme were misrepresented and that this transfer should not have actually gone ahead. Um, so the client who complained, um, he came out and just said basically that he felt pressured by the advisor into the transfer and that the proper steps in, you know, assessing the suitability weren't actually followed by the advice firm Mansion Park, which is um, quite a well-known name in the British Steel Pension debacle. Um, they were saying, Mansion Park kind of argued that actually a complaint which involved a transfer shouldn't really automatically be viewed as like suspicious by the FOS, uh, which is, you know, a valid argument. And But they were also said that there shouldn't be any misconception that advice to transfer away will likely be unsuitable. Uh, and the FOS, you know, kind of went on this straight away and the abundsman um, Simon Hollingshead pointed out that this response has a fundamental flaw um, because, you know, actually it should be you need to prove why it is suitable, not why it's not unsuitable. Um, Especially when the regulators but... come out right, and said before that yeah. their position is that in the major vast majority of cases, it's going to be unsuitable to leave a yeah. DB scheme. So Precisely. it makes sense that the force is coming from that perspective, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, they kind of, that was a bad way for them to put it. They kind of like lost it there and then. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there was also concerns raised about, you know, the comparison made by the projected benefits from 
this personal pension that he transferred into and then from the BSPS, which he transferred out of, and then maybe the pension protection fund, if it went that way. Um, you know, the Bunsman said it couldn't be compared like for like, and therefore Mansion Park um, didn't adhere to the FCA's um, conduct of business source book, um, which actually requires firms to be able to, you know, provide enough information and, you know, solid information for um, the client to be like make an informed decision. That obviously wasn't the case. So they said, you know, this transfer ultimately shouldn't have gone ahead and um, the client's worse off and then the FOS um, ruled that this uh, firm Mansion Park had to put him back into the position he would have been in if he wasn't given unsuitable advice. Yeah, a big old decision again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, what kind of backdrop is this kind of happening against these DB decisions? What else has been happening in, in the defined benefit space? Um, so following this, I mean, not on the back of just, you know, happened in the same week. Um, the Financial Conduct Authority sent out another data request on DB pension transfer advice, you know, covering the months of the coronavirus and, you know, the lockdown period. Um, it was sent out to one, around 1,600 firms who hold DB permissions and they have to um, kind of give data on the period of transfer advice um, from April to September. Um, it's the second, you know, data-wide request that they've sent out this year. Um, it sent one to 1,900 firms um, in July, covering the period from October 2018 to March 2020. So we're kind of, you know, got this massive two-year block now that we can hopefully see what's been going on in the advice market and whether anything, you know, is improving or, you know, how um, the coronavirus and the lockdown has kind of affected it. So, yeah, more to hear on this. I guess soon. Yeah, do you think that means that we've seen firms drop out the DB market if the number of requests going out has dropped? Or do you think that's just kind of speculation on my end? <laughs> I would say it certainly looks that way, but I have been in touch with the FCA on this because, you know, you see these two numbers and you see that they're different. You think, wait a minute, it has 300 firms just dropped out the market. And they say that's not necessarily the case, you know. Okay. For, so helpful yeah. it could be for a range of reasons um but yeah so kind of speculative at this point um sure. if 300 firms have fought, dropped out of the market i'm sure we would find out something or another that this has happened yeah absolutely um okay so so i mean what what are advisors saying about about this latest round of requests um so some of them are a bit are getting a bit annoyed now because you know this is the sixth um data requests, not just on DB, just, you know, in general from the FCA that they've received this year. And they're saying, you know, here's another data request, but we're not seeing any action. So what's the kind of, what's the point in all of this? Like, and obviously it's time consuming for firms as well. You know, they've, they've probably got enough going on with, not with lockdown, you know, advising clients, clients panicking. And, you know, they're being like, this is, mandatory they have to fill out this request it's not something they can ignore um so yeah quite a few firms are a bit annoyed that they have to do this yet again but yeah and also if you haven't filled out the first data request you actually have to fill that out along with this second one now um so they are making sure you know every every firm is caught by this someone's got a fun weekend ahead of them haven't they <laughs> having to fill out <laughs> two of those at once yeah. <laughs> 
yeah I would I don't envy advisors that have to sit down and do these I wouldn't know where to start I think I um, from a couple of um, people I've heard from as well have said that there are still sort of ongoing scam concerns when these surveys come out because in the past the FCA has changed the address or maybe used this unfamiliar address to, to advisors to send the survey out and even now people are still concerned as to whether it's actually legitimate when it lands in their inbox. It seems like such an easy thing that the FCA could get right. <laughs> um, I mean, on, in their defence, they did send an email out before they sent this request beforehand. saying, sending this out, and this is the email it's coming from. Yeah. So that's something's, something's still not working, though. whichever side it's on. No. Um, <laughs> still get this survey through and think that it's, think that it's sort, of, sort of malicious. It must be so stressful for firms because you've got this, this request coming through and... To be fair to the FCA, they probably did 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 a lot of what they could in this this example. But missing a legitimate data request from the regulator must yeah. be terrifying. But also giving client information and kind of your firm's data to a scammer is also terrifying. They're kind mm. of stuck yeah. between a bit of a rock and a hard place with yeah. this if they, if they can't be sure. And I mean, it's not the first time. Would it be the first time the FCA has been um, cloned, would it? So, yeah, 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 definitely. And I mean, as we've been saying then for the past two years, I guess, watch this space in terms of the DB market. We'll see, we'll <laughs> see what the regulator finds. Uh, thank you for listening to the FT Advice podcast. Join us next week for the next episode. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.